Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash The Wellness Trap. Hey there, happy new year and welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy. I'm a little under the weather today, so my voice might be a little scratchy, but I'm excited to get you this episode. My guest today is intuitive eating co-author Elise Resch, who joins me to discuss her history with the natural food movement, which I don't think a lot of people necessarily know about. She's known for intuitive eating and she had her own history with disordered eating, but she talks about how trying to eat naturally led her into orthorexia and other forms of disordered eating. And I think that's a super important conversation, especially this time of year when diet and wellness culture in full swing, and there's lots of pressure to change your eating. So I'm really excited to talk with Elise today. We also talked about how intuitive eating is being co-opted by wellness culture, another important thing to look out for at this time of year, and what to consider if you're interested in quote-unquote natural foods. This is a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you shortly. But before I do, just a few quick announcements. This podcast is brought to you by my second book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, longest subtitle ever, and it's available wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, I think you'll love the book. It's a deep dive into so many of the things we talk about here, like how wellness culture often drives disordered eating, the role of influencers and social media algorithms and spreading wellness misinformation, problematic practices in the alternative and integrative medicine space, and lots more. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book or pop into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. My first book, Anti-Diet, is also a great resource at this time of year, I think, if you feel yourself being pulled towards diets and other aspects of diet culture. So you can pick that up wherever you get your books as well, or you can go to christyharrison.com slash anti-diet. This podcast is made possible by my paid subscribers at Substack. Paid subscriptions not only help support the show and keep me able to make this podcast free for everyone, but they also get you great perks like bonus episodes and Q&As, early access to regular episodes, commenting privileges, posts from our archives that aren't available anywhere else covering a huge range of topics in wellness and diet culture, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. And if you're already signed up, thank you so much for your support. I wanted to give a quick shout out to a couple of folks who became paid subscribers recently and left nice feedback. Sandy said the content is informative, evidence-based, and a hugely welcome break from the constant barrage of diet and wellness culture. Sarah Susayi said, your writing and research have changed my life. And Kristen Mullinax said, thank you for being a voice for people trapped in wellness culture. So thanks to those folks for their support and those kind words. And if you want to join them in becoming a paid subscriber, just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Elise Resch. 
So Elise, welcome to Rethinking Wellness. I'm so glad to be talking with you for this podcast. We've spoken many times over the years and several of those conversations were for my first podcast, Food Psych. So we'll link to those episodes in the show notes. And in those episodes, we talked about your intuitive eating books, which you co-authored with Evelyn Triboli. And I'm sure many listeners will know you from that work. But when we were chatting offline earlier this year, you mentioned that you have a strong history with the natural food movement. And I don't think many people probably know that about you. I know I didn't before you said that to me. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And I'm so happy to be here also, Christy. Great to see you again. So interestingly, I grew up in a home that was not at all connected to either diet culture or wellness culture. We had everything in the house. Eating was a joy. My mother didn't like to cook. Cooking wasn't a joy for her, but um, we just ate and there was no conversation about healthy food or unhealthy food. I didn't know anything about that. Uh, And as I said, no connection to diet culture either. I didn't know anything about that. And then Mm -hmm. I started college. And my first day, I may have said this in a past podcast, but my first day at UCLA, I uh, was in the dorm and I went down to the cafeteria to pack my lunch for the first day of school. I was so excited. And I was standing in line and got this great big Kaiser roll. These are these great big bread rolls. I started to put a whole bunch of tuna on it. And the girl behind me literally yelled, oh my God. And I said, what's the matter? Is there a fly on it? She said, no, that's so fattening. And it was like Greek. I didn't understand what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. Literally. I know I was pretty naive. I didn't understand. But that was the first moment that I heard any connection between food and anything else other than pleasure. Okay, moving on. That was September of my freshman year. In the spring of my freshman year, I met a boy who ended up becoming my first husband and the father of my son. And his family, I now look back, was extremely orthorexic. I obviously wouldn't have known that title or wouldn't have understood it at all. But here's how it went. So On our first date, he was in a fraternity and the party was at his house. And I went there and I met his parents. And it was the beginning of a wonderful love affair between his parents and me. They were (laughs) wonderful, wonderful. I was, he was an only child. I was the daughter they never had. And I adored them. And so they would invite me over for dinner on a regular basis. And he'd come pick me up at the dorm and bring me back there, which I was thrilled because it was much better food than the dorm food. And I was introduced to really wonderful, delicious food. My mother tried hard, but she wasn't a very good cook. And my mother-in-law was this, well, she wasn't my mother-in-law at that time. She was a fabulous cook. So as I was there after a while, I started to hear some things about healthy eating. But, you know, I don't know that they registered so much. Although I will say that I was on a date with him and we were going to get dessert. This is probably pretty early on in the relationship. And I ordered, I think it was cherry pie with some kind of pie. And he ordered fresh pineapple and he started to cry. And he said, oh my God, I can't believe you eat like that. You're going to be the mother of my children. How can you eat that terrible food? And that was the beginning. And, you know, you're young. I was young. We met when I was 18. He was 17. And at this point we were both 18, I think. And I just wanted to please. And so I said, fine, I won't eat any, you know, we talked about what he considered unhealthy food. I won't eat any more of those foods. And I just stopped eating them. And that was the beginning. And then I fell into the natural food movement. Now, I want to say something. I was not a nutritionist at that point. I got out of college as an elementary school teacher. 
although my interest in nutrition, you know, started to bloom with this relationship, but I didn't know anything about nutrition. And as time went on, I was more and more orthorexic. I was more and more only eating healthy food. And somehow I did it. I don't know. It just didn't, uh, it didn't seem to be a problem, but it, it definitely became a problem. And then when I got pregnant with my son, oof, I had a doctor who was really tied into diet culture and was monitoring what I was eating. So all around my eating was being monitored. At one point during the pregnancy, this is kind of personal stuff, but I don't mind talking about it. <laughs> I was dying for a piece of apple pie. Here we go back to the pie. And there was this wonderful little restaurant in West LA called the Apple Pan. And I really wanted to go and get it. And he wouldn't let me have it. He said, no, you're carrying my child. I do not want you to eat that food. So it was pretty deep. Also, in relationship to my former mother-in-law, she was wonderful. You know, I miss them terribly. But she was guided by Adele Davis, which whom I'm sure you've heard of. Have you heard of Adele mm -hmm. Davis? Yeah. She was considered one of the most prominent nutritionists at the time. And she actually had a really great education. She was a nutritionist, a dietitian. She had a master's degree in biochemistry. She pretty much, I think, started the natural, well, I don't know, you would know better than I, but she was mm -hmm. a, a major component of the natural food movement. I like to look through a lens of psychology all the time. And interestingly, she, I think she was the youngest of five kids or something, yeah, all girls, I think. And her mother had a stroke when she was 10 days old and died when she was 17 months old and never really was able to nurture, you know, nourish her. And she, she had to be fed with an eyedropper. So she never had that being held with a breast or a bottle and being fed. And she said something about how she treated her patients as if they were herself. She wanted to be their mother and try to make them healthy. And it was so interesting because my mother-in-law really wanted her family to be healthy psychologically. She was brought up in a home of you know limited funds and her parents had a fruit and vegetable stand. And so she got into, quote, natural foods with that. But I think that for my mother-in-law, and it sounds like also, as I read about Adele Davis, that there was this sense of control. If they could just control people's health, then people wouldn't leave them. People would be there for them. And I know that that was, I'm presuming this about Adele Davis, I obviously didn't know her. By the way, she wrote her first book, I think in the 40s. And then her, that was a textbook on nutrition. And then she wrote a more popular book, a few more popular books. I think she sold millions of books, actually, in the 50s, I think was when her popular book came out. In any case, the way I see a parallel with let's control people's health. Her mother had a stroke. She wasn't there for her. She wasn't nurtured that way. My mother-in-law, her parents were not available. She was pretty much mm -hmm. left on her own a lot. And so I see that now because, again, I look through a psychological lens and I think it was for me as well a concept of control in a world where I just really didn't feel like I had much control as I got deeper and deeper into the you know natural food movement. So I had my son and when I started cooking for him, I made all of his baby food because Adele Davis told me in her book, she didn't tell me, but she said in her book, you know, that processed baby food was dangerous for kids and you should make all your own food. And I, I remember the doctor telling the pediatrician telling me I should start feeding him at two months old. Can you believe that, Christy? Oh my God. And so I bought some brown rice and I ground it up and I cooked it and then I curated it, you know, or whatever I did with it. I just tried to get it down to something that I could put in his mouth. And of course I stuck it in his mouth and he spit it out. But 
I know that I pushed natural food on him as a small child. I look back at it with horror. I took him as a when we as a toddler and we'd go to parties. I'd bring him some. Uh, you're going to laugh a carob brownie instead of the chocolate <laughs> brownies. When he was three, I remember him saying to me, "Mommy, I just want to eat what the other kids are eating." And I, I had the wisdom to say, "Fine," and I stopped doing that. But I really regret having pushed that on him. So moving along, you know, here I am now deciding I don't want to be a teacher anymore and not having any more children and I want to go back to graduate school. So what was the natural thing? Go to become a nutritionist. By the way, sidebar, you know, Adele Davis didn't say everything that was bogus. I mean, she said some things that I remember when she would promote going on acidophilus, which is one of the strains of a probiotic after you've been on an antibiotic, which is so interesting because mm-hmm. in today's world, you know, it's encouraged to have probiotics from some doctors after you've been on an antibiotic. And she didn't promote crazy foods. I mean, she just wanted natural foods, she just wanted whole grains and fruits and vegetables and unprocessed foods. And that's what I followed for quite a while. Well, then I went to graduate school. <laughs> became Mm -hmm. a nutritionist and, you know, learned a lot more. But it was in that period that my own eating disorder also started. So I've had, I guess, two eating disorders, orthorexia, and then it turned into a diet and and binge thing because it went from, you know, it went from being very particular about what I ate to being focused on my own body. That's kind of my history on that. And uh, it's profound to me, actually. Yeah. Do you feel like the orthorexic phase the sort of natural food movement that you were part of tied up with any sort of beliefs about the environment and like ethics? Was that a part of it for you at all? Or was it mostly like human health? Yeah, no, I think she was really worried about pesticides and chemicals and processed food. But it didn't come from an ethical standpoint. It came from, I want to preserve this family. I want to keep everybody alive and well forever kind of thing. That's how she brought up her son. That's how she took care of her husband. I don't know whether you want me to go a few years later. I think I will. My father-in-law, my former father-in-law, well, may they both rest in peace. He had a bump on his head and she she didn't believe in doctors particularly and or at all, I should say. And so she was rubbing the bump with olive oil for two years and the bump was getting bigger and bigger. Finally, he started losing his eyesight and he finally went to a doctor and he had hydroencephalus. He had water on his brain and he literally became blind. And that's a real danger from, you know, the natural food movement. She also, I mean, she really didn't believe in doctors. I remember when my son had his first ear infection as a baby, the pediatrician prescribed an antibiotic for him. She was hysterical. I mean, she thought that she was going to take us to court because we were, yeah, she said, you know, you, you just are not bringing up your child, right? And so you have to temper that with the fact that she was loving and wonderful and but food was her whole, you know, food was her whole life. Yeah. It sounds like she was very orthorexic herself. Oh, she was completely, she was, she wouldn't put a bite of anything in her mouth that wasn't quote unquote natural, unprocessed. Now, of course, we know that cooking something is processing it, but in her (laughs) mind, something that, you know, didn't come in a package, she cooked everything and she was a wonderful cook and the food was delicious and it was varied and balanced and she didn't really restrict anything. She wasn't a believer in a lot of sugar, although she would make things with dates and, you know, that had, quote, natural sugar in them. Mm. It's interesting, right? The way people think of restriction or not restriction and what they think of as processed or not okay versus, you know, this is a safe type of sugar or something. Right. And so I do have an anecdote about her that I might forget to mention later, so I'll say it right now. 
when she was in her 80s and she had dementia at that point and she was living in an assisted living facility, she forgot all about her rules. And she started eating all the foods that she wasn't letting herself eat her whole life. And it was, to me, such a poignant and sad thing to watch because now she was just enjoying going down and having the ice cream that she never let herself have and the cookies. And But she didn't have the memory anymore that she was had, had banned them. I find that so sad. I actually wrote it up for the New York Times, but they didn't expect, accept it. I thought mm. it was a, you know, quite an ironic story. Yeah, completely. I mean, I'm glad she got to enjoy those foods at the end of her life. If not, it would have been nice if it had been her whole life, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you said that orthorexia started to transition to a more diet-oriented eating disorder when you were in school for nutrition. But it's interesting that it sounds like the orthorexia helped drive you to be interested in nutrition in the first place. And then dietetic school maybe got you in deeper to the whole weight loss diet part of it. It was before that, actually. If I look back at it and I see the first, you know, sometimes you see a sign, but you don't know it at the time. When mm -hmm. I cut out all those foods that he told me I shouldn't eat, I lost some weight. I had never been focused on my weight. I had never been focused on my body in that way. I just grew up, you know, without that. And I did note that. And then I mm -hmm. think that what really happened was when I wanted to get pregnant again, I thought I should lose some weight because that was the narrative. I didn't think that the first time. And that's when I started dieting and I started binging. I started dieting mm. and binging and dieting and binging and never got pregnant again. Mm. It's another personal story. I learned in, once I got into graduate school that even you know a small amount of weight loss a week will cause infertility. It's a very personal <laughs> interview, I know, but I, if I can help anybody out there not diet and not, you know, restrict themselves because it can have, you know, terrible consequences. I think by the mm -hmm. time I went to graduate school and I really changed my life dramatically and had some agency in my own life, the eating disorders really went away. And mm -hmm. ironically, I mean, there was no, there was no treatment for eating disorders in those days. I did have a therapist, asked her once if she thought I had an eating disorder and she said, no, I don't think so. And that was, you know, that was it. But I think it was my own healing Mostly not from graduate school, because graduate school had a lot of, you know, of the prescribed meal plans and all that. It was more from the therapy I was in for years and years and years that I was able to heal from that. So do you feel like your recovery sort of helped you get out of the natural food movement and orthorexia as well? Or how did you start to move away from that piece of it? I moved away from that family, not that I wasn't still connected with my in-laws and they adored me and I adored them and I would visit them and my mother-in-law would push food on me, but I didn't have that control over me anymore. I remember I had a history of loving food, loving all kinds of foods, having joy in eating, and I rediscovered that. And I think that it was really mo mostly taking, well, I use the word agency, agency over my own life and making a lot of changes in my life, including starting my career. So mm -hmm. I feel really great about the fact that when I started as a nutritionist, dietitian, registered dietitian nutritionist, I had really healed that eating disorder. It was, it was gone at that point. I think it was probably, you know, a big impetus to fighting against, we were taught in graduate school about helping people by helping them lose weight in those days. You know, there was such a, mm -hmm. that was what dietitians were supposed to do horrifyingly making meal plans. And I did that in the beginning because that's all I knew, but it just didn't ever feel right because it no longer was a part of my life. 
did you sort of connect the dots? I mean, I know for me personally, I started to have this real cognitive dissonance because I had also had an eating disorder, also started to heal it with intuitive eating actually and therapy and was coming back to my origins as an intuitive eater while I was starting my career in dietetics. And I was, you know, doing very traditional dietitian things like educating people on healthy plate and blah, 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 you know, and like portion control and all of this stuff and started to really have this cognitive dissonance of like, but I don't do that. And actually the people who are like taking my advice and running with it and sort of are my like star students or star clients or whatever were the ones who reminded me of myself when I was the most disordered. And I was like, "Mm, that seems not okay. You know, I agree with you. I remember having a client once who was quote unquote, doing intuitive eating, meaning she was only eating when she was at a certain level of hunger and, at a, and you know stopping at a certain level of fullness. And she refused to go anywhere to go out because she couldn't be so focused on it. And I remember thinking, and of course, talking to her about this is not intuitive eating. And this is not, you know, a healthy relationship with food. She turned it into a diet. Yeah, she did. She absolutely turned it into a diet. So interesting. Do you feel like your experience with that natural food movement helped you see orthorexic tendencies in your clients? Because I know orthorexia didn't become sort of codified as a term until like the 1990s, but I'm sure it was it was around in the natural food movement in stories like yours, you know, way before that. So it's interesting to see how it manifests over the years, right? Yeah, and I'm sure I did. You know, here would be somebody who was refusing to eat anything, quote unquote, processed. Again, I'll use that quote around it and cutting out certain things that they thought were unhealthy. And, you know, that was the terminology. It was, this isn't healthy for me, or I'm not going to be able to fix my whatever physical problems they thought they were having by not eating those foods. So, yeah, I, I was really tuned into that and remembering what my life had been like during that time. I mean, I don't discount the pleasure I had in the food I was eating during that time. It was delicious food. It was just, I didn't get to have the things that I really wanted to have on top yeah. of those yummy foods. You know, I didn't get to have the <laughs> things that I used to, used to eat and love and eat right. out and love. Yeah, that guilting experience about the pie really sticks with me. It's like that you'd have to give that up and that it was so connected to it's just so interesting to how connected that was to motherhood and to this idea of like your body as this vessel for someone's child yeah and you know and at the same time being told by my doctor he said i should not gain very much weight during the pregnancy Mm -hmm. he was trying to keep my he was angry at me i remember coming in one time on a monday after having been out for a weekend and and he got me on the scale he said oh my god you've gained too much weight you know, mm. it was, it was a combat. Both of those, they kind of fit together at that point. Yeah, it's a perfect storm, kind of. Yes. I mean, pregnancy is such a moment for so many people, right? That pushes them into much more disorder. I was so, I feel so lucky that throughout my pregnancy, I was able to avoid stepping on the scale for almost all of it. Like it was the beginning of starting at this practice. And then at the very end when they were like, you might have to go into surgery and we need to weigh you for anesthesia. And I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, but other than that, I really was not, I just would refuse every week and they would kind of let it go. And I avoided having those kind of conversations, but. You're much younger than I am. And I think you had more sense of agency or yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking up than I did at that point. I was so young. Um, yeah. I was 20, 25 when I got pregnant and I didn't have a voice. I was 39. <laughs> so yeah, I also had much more life behind me, I think too. 
it didn't occur to me at all to fight against this doctor until yeah. later. I did fight against him. And he said to me, you asked too many questions. You need to find another doctor. Oh. <laughs> this was years. This was wow. after, after my son. So, you know, mm. a lot of patriarchal stuff going on in my life from yeah. my father through, you know, my doctors and other people. Yeah. And so it sounds like having a career and sort of breaking away from that and starting to speak up for yourself was really pivotal for you. Your relationship with your body shifted a lot during that time too. I'm a completely different person than I was when I was, you know, 35 years old. That's when mm -hmm. I started therapy. Completely different person. By the way, I thought of another anecdote around what happened as a result of my mother-in-law's uh, influence around natural stuff. You and I talked about this, I think. I had uh, got these two little kittens for my son. He was about eight at the time. And oh my goodness, I was just, I fell in love with one of them particularly because he was so, his name was Tiger. And he was the sweetest, most, you know, gentle little kitten. And he would come on my lap all the time. The other one, her name was Amanda, and she was pretty aloof and jumped up to the top of the cabinets and stuff. But <laughs> my mother-in-law at the time, not believing in doctors, not believing in the um, regular veterinary community, brought a veterinarian, who knows whether he really was or not, to the house to vaccinate these cats. And it didn't take on Tiger and Tiger died. And I was, it was so such trauma for me, horrible trauma. I, to this day, remember when I heard when they called me from the, you know, vet that I just broke out in hives all over my body that couldn't, wouldn't go away until I went to an allergist to get some kind of, you know, I don't know, Benadryl shot or whatever it was. It was devastating. It was really traumatic. And I know that's because I wasn't allowed to take these cats to a real veterinarian who would give them the right kind of vaccination. So so this might have been some kind of random, quote unquote, natural vaccination or something. That Yeah, something like that, because she didn't really believe in doctors. You know, you can see what happened with her husband and yeah. how angry she was that I was giving my son an antibiotic. I mean, and yeah, thank God for antibiotics keeping us all alive. I don't think many of us would be here today without them, really. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it sounds like she had a really strong influence on you and, and on her son's life, too, and sort of how he approached food and nutrition and all of that. And you know, it was so complicated, Christy, is that I loved these people. I loved this woman so much. She was so warm yeah. and so loving and so giving to me. And uh, it was really a family that I adored being with. And so it's a little hard, or it's harder, I think, to question when you're not being quote traumatized or abused or neglected or something when it's just so much full of love you just take it in as well this is coming from love and so i think i just and was always coming from love pushing food on on us on me the rest of her life too until she couldn't cook anymore it was the way she expressed love but i realize now that i couldn't combat it because there was nothing negative beyond that yeah that makes a lot of sense there's a real pull to stay close i think when it's someone who's so warm and connected with you otherwise it's hard to disentangle you know if it were today i have a voice today i mean I, mm -hmm. uh, i've had a voice for a long time now and i'm sure in a very gentle and loving way i would have set some boundaries but then i didn't know how to do that yeah i can relate i didn't know what boundaries even were until i was like 25 at least 28 maybe something i'd never heard of that term you know it was just like completely enmeshed with the people around me so yeah where did the book Intuitive Eating fit into all of this? Obviously, it's after you became a dietitian, but I'm curious how you sort of went from your own experience with disordered eating and orthorexia to writing that book. 
I think that's a profound and important question, Christy, because I don't think I could have written intuitive eating if I was still tied up in good food, bad food, healthy food, unhealthy food. I couldn't have, you know, I, here I was and am a dietitian, and I'm helping people tune into what they want to eat without restriction, making peace with all food. And I think there would have been such a cognitive dissonance going on if I really still believed that certain foods were bad foods and other foods were good foods or healthy and unhealthy, whatever terminology you want to use. So I think that intuitive eating had to have happened at that time. It couldn't have happened earlier. It had to have happened when I had, after I had broken free from the orthorexia, broken free from the eating disorder. Otherwise, I couldn't have been authentic in writing it because I, as a dietitian, I did believe in nutrition. Of course, we believe in nutrition. We, you know, we have to eat, we have to nourish ourselves, but I think it would have kept me in the more natural food, good food, bad food thing if I hadn't gone through my own healing process. So I'm really grateful that I was at that point when this book, this book was written originally. 30 years ago in 1993 was the beginning of the reading. It was first edition was published in 95. So, you know, it's been out for what, 28 years now and four editions of it. And uh, thank goodness. I mean, thank goodness. It's been such a profound book for healing for so many people that I'm really grateful that I was able to do that then because I wouldn't have been able to. I, I just couldn't have, I couldn't have written it. Right. And it probably wouldn't have even been on your radar to write a book about that. It would have just made no sense. Like, no. If you still believe those things. I might have gotten into the how dieting is terrible and diets lead to eating disorders, et cetera. But I think the good food, bad food, you know, that comes with the natural food movement would have been an obstacle to mm-hmm. being able to make peace with food. Well, that's such an interesting point. And I think it leads me to a question of how do you see intuitive eating now being sort of co-opted, not just by diet culture, but by wellness culture. Because there's like the beliefs at the heart of the natural food movement, I think are still present very much today in these ideas floating around in wellness culture that certain foods are toxic or bad, that people need to detox, people need to avoid certain things and eat quote unquote clean. And, you know, everybody has a different definition of that. Do you have to avoid all sugar or just one thing or just another, you know, and the different macronutrients that are sort of lionized, I think, differ among different sort of wellness groups. But there's such a good food, bad food morality to all of it, you know, just really as an undercurrent in wellness culture. And yet I see intuitive eating becoming popular in wellness circles too. And it feels very fraught to me to see that because I feel like there's some misinterpretation of intuitive eating happening and taking parts that seem in line with wellness culture, but not really understanding the full picture of it. It makes me very angry when it is co-opted. It makes me very angry when people try to ride on the tail of something that is so powerful in terms of helping people heal when intuitive eating is fully understood and taught in a way where it's fully understood the depth, the nuances. So it infuriates me. On the other hand, Sometimes people fall into intuitive eating, maybe to start with in the wrong way, but then it mm-hmm. leads them to actually reading the book and, mm-hmm. you know, not just buying into what has been thrown at them, especially when they are recognizing that, you know, they're falling off of diets, they're falling off of restriction, they can't do it anymore. And they've heard this term intuitive eating, but the anger is still there on my part that 
this is, you know, it's capitalism. I think it's the idea, well, this is a successful book, you know, let's see how we can take words from it and use it in our diet programs. And I won't even mention, I don't want to give any credit to any of these, you know, any audience to any of these things out there. But some of my words, by the way, I have seen lifted in one of those diet programs out there, words I wrote personally in the book were lifted directly out of that and put in there. And you know, we consulted a uh, an attorney about, well, what what can we do? And we were told, you have no power over this because uh, they have so much money and lawyers and all that, that mm-hmm. it's just going to wipe you out of energy, money, all of that. So you have to let it go. Mm-hmm. There's an, also a middle group, Christy. There's the, you know, the people you're talking about now. And then there's the group of well-intentioned, a lot of them dietitians who are teaching intuitive eating, but really aren't trained in it. I am finding, you know, I'll have clients come to me who saw someone else who was, who said they were an intuitive eating counselor, but they weren't really getting true intuitive eating because they weren't really trained in it. And that's a group that troubles me quite a bit because there's such great training out there. And, you know, if you're going to promote yourself as an intuitive eating counselor, then be an, a truly trained intuitive eating counselor to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and so unfortunate when people stumble into that version of intuitive eating where it's just kind of reinforcing a lot of the good and bad rhetoric or other diet culture beliefs. Like I definitely see people who don't seem trained really in intuitive eating, but call themselves intuitive eating nutritionists or dietitians or whatever coaches saying things like, you know, if you're eating intuitively, you'll want unprocessed foods. You won't crave sweets anymore. You'll get rid of your cravings, all this, you know, which is really going back to this idea of good and bad foods and that there are certain foods that you're not supposed to want and you're not supposed to crave. Well, it's a real betrayal of intuitive eating and it's really unfair and wrong. And I, I'm pretty much, I do have a voice now. And when I see things like that, I will contact people and, you know, I've made a lot of people upset and angry, but (laughs) let them know, you know, this isn't okay. You are promoting something that is not intuitive eating and is harming people by what you're by what you're promoting i don't have a you know that much extra time but boy when i can when i see something that infuriates me i do i i I find the person i track them down and i contact them i saw some young woman who was a trainer or something who was she put on her website she's an intuitive eating counselor she might even have i think intuitive eating was even in the title of her website I contacted her and I said, this isn't okay. First of all, she was showing pictures of herself and very, you know, revealing exercise clothes. I said, this isn't okay. This is not, a, you know, this is not right. She was, she was very upset with me. And I said, have you read intuitive eating? Well, no, I haven't really read it. She said, I was mm. like, oh my goodness. I'm sure she, <laughs> <you know. laughs> I don't think she probably did anything about it, but you know, you can't, you can't control the world. You just have no. to reach out with a, a, tr- a truth to people. And here's another response to, I think, what you, one of your last questions. It's when I have clients come to me who are very tied into this movement, this wellness movement, this and the, the good and bad foods, the, I, you know, telling me they know that if they eat that certain food, they get this reaction, this or that. I have stopped trying to educate them right off because I know they're not going to hear me. I moved to a place of talking to them about sustainability. You know, when somebody mm-hmm. comes to me and says, I absolutely cannot eat sugar. If I eat sugar, I get acne and I'm never going to eat sugar again. And helping them understand that they're, I will say, you know, I don't believe in what you're believing in. I hear you believe this, but I don't believe in it. 
And I want to ask you, do you think this is something that you could sustain for the rest of your life? And pretty in, invariably, they say, well, no. And then, of course, they feel bad if they go against the rule they've come up with. Eventually, over time, when they really start trusting me and feel safe and are really ready to let go of their restrictive eating, they will come to hear what I have to say that, you know, <laughs> scientific truth. Something that I, I really love talking to my clients about now is the social determinants of health. It really helps put things in perspective when they're so absolutely sure that if they eat this particular food or don't exercise this particular way, it's going to impact their health. And when I explain that what you eat and how you move really accounts for only 10%, I think it was in your book, Christy, mm -hmm. it's 10% mm -hmm. of your health. And here are all these other factors, you know, your genetics, your whether you're taking in substances that are, you know, like nicotine or something that's problematic mm -hmm. or, and all the social pieces of it, they sit back and they go, you're kidding, really? And I think it helps loosen them up a bit and be more open to not being so rigid about their eating. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and I've also noticed that with people, like when I give that statistic where it's at the population level, only 10% of health outcomes are attributable to food and exercise combined. And then, you know, it's like another 20% to other health behaviors and 70% is social determinants. People often think it's the reverse, you know, and so it like kind of blows minds to say, you know, it's 90% other things than food and exercise. Whereas in diet and wellness culture, I think we're conditioned to think it's probably 90% food and exercise, you know, and, and only 10% other things. Yeah, they're so shocked by that. And I think it's very helpful when people get that understanding. It, it gives them more, you know, they've been trusting whatever sources they're trusting that aren't necessarily accurate. It gives them another counter argument, you know, a counter argument to what they've been believing in, and it helps them move out of it, out of the good and bad food thing. Right. I'm curious to know, like you've been living and working for many years in what's arguably the wellness capital of the world, Los Angeles, right? And not just LA, but the West Side, which is where Hollywood is and Goop and, you know, it's like the birthplace of countless wellness trends. So I'm wondering how it's affected both your recovery and your client's recovery to be in this epicenter of wellness culture. Well, I've been living here since I'm nine. So my recovery happened within the context of this. So it hasn't had any impact, you know, at all on my own personal relationship with food and my body. But I do find more and more people coming into my office who are connected to Hollywood or connected to the beach you know, or whatever it is. And they're coming in with some pretty rigid thoughts. There's, there's a, I don't even think I should mention the name of it, but there's a, a store here, not Whole Foods, but like a smaller version of it. Oh, I know. Yep. You know which one I mean? I do. Yeah. I think someone's mentioned it on the podcast before, but yeah. I find that almost every one of my clients who comes in with this kind of orthorexic wellness, whatever, that's the only place they'll shop because that's the only place that they think they can get healthy food. And I found it very funny. And I tell this story to my clients sometimes. I was in that store one day because they actually do have some yummy, you know, like their hot bar <laughs> is really yummy food. I was looking at the breads and I saw this bread that looked so good. It was a, a barley bread and it was on the gluten-free shelf. Mm -hmm. And I just like, I'm <laughs> laughing. I mean, oh my goodness. Here's these people going into the store thinking they're getting what they should be getting. And, you know, barley has gluten in it. Yeah. <laughs> here's the spread on the gluten-free shelf. Just have to laugh. And it does help when I tell my clients that to not just trust everything, you know, as if the store is the, the mecca of, of health here. Yeah, the misinformation can uh, can be rampant. Yeah. 
So if people are interested in quote unquote natural foods or using food to prevent or cure disease and things like that, what do you hope they'll consider before they get in too deep to that mindset? Well, you know, first of all, they're taking lots and lots of supplements and to consider the fact that that's an unregulated, you know, Mm -hmm. territory and that they could possibly be doing harm to themselves when they're taking lots and lots of different things that they have no idea really whether they've been tested at all. And I also help them look at whoever's recommending a lot of these things or is also making a lot of money out. I I often say to clients, you know, if you're going somewhere where they're telling you that you should take this and this and this, and they're on their shelves, you know, all these things and you're paying for them, be cautious, be aware, you know, what is going on here that they're recommending this to you. But I'm very gentle with my clients and I'm not authoritarian with them. I just try to give them information so that they can make the best decisions for themselves, but to be aware of certain things they might not have known about. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because those kind of financial entanglements aren't something that people know about necessarily that much or consider, you know, it's like, oh, they maybe are just sourcing the best vitamins. Meanwhile, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, I'll have aired the episode I did recently with Jonah Sulman, who's an eating disorder dietitian who used to work in an alternative medicine clinic before changing his career to go into eating disorders. And he shared some wild stuff about pressure to prescribe supplements and like the wild markup that there is on supplements that there was in that clinic and that I know exists in other alternative medicine spaces as well and sort of the financial incentives that providers have to prescribe certain things, you know, not just supplements, but like testing too, certain kinds of tests and stuff. The point we made in that episode was that people see alternative medicine as much purer and sort of less corrupted by money and pharma and all of that stuff that we see conventional medicine as being so under the influence of money and pharma power and the thinking is like, oh, come over here to alternative medicine where everybody's out for your best interests and it's all natural and it's gentle and it's safe. And that's actually not really true. You know, the framing is is so different than the reality in a lot of cases. That actually leads me to something you and I were talking about prior to this offline that mm-hmm. I wanted to mention. Someone in my life, very important person in my life who is a physician, a pediatric endocrinologist in fact in charge of that whole department and has started a an integrative medicine department at the hospital where he works. And I was asking him, well, I knew myself, but I wanted to talk to him a little bit too about what his concept of integrative medicine was. And it was so interesting. He said his approach, well, I know that his approach was about mindfulness and guided imagery and spirituality, but his idea of integrative medicine is integrating mind, body, and soul. And he thinks that these other alternative or functional medicine, he steers away from them. He says he sees them as patriarchal and directive, that they believe that there's something wrong with you. And then they tell you what the formula is to fix them and that they'll do a lot of unnecessary tests and they're making money on the tests that they're doing. And he says, really, for some of it, it's a lot like Western medicine. So his belief about integrated, the integrative model is they have to work toward the best healing and the, what's most positive for each person through things like mindfulness, meditation. He was trained to God in imagery many years ago and spirituality. His integrative department there is not based on functional medicine or alternative medicine. Oh, that's great. That's really nice to hear that people are approaching it that way because, 
yeah, when I think of integrative medicine, I think the the term integrative sort of came out of this idea of like integrating alternative and conventional medicine. But it sounds like he's much more about integrating the whole person, right? Like truly holistic health, not just focusing on the physical. Exactly. And, you know, it's very, very much as we all are understanding of the connection between the mind and the body, the mind-body connection in terms of even, you know, well, we can't go, we don't have time now to go into it, but polyvagal <laughs> and, you know, vagus nerve and microbiome mm-hmm. and all. I mean, we are connected that way. And then he's very much spiritual. So he brings, you know, that piece of it in as well. That's really interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that and for, you know, sharing everything you did and getting personal, you know, in this conversation. I really appreciate it. Can you share for people who probably everyone listening knows your work, but would love to know what you're working on now, if you can talk about it and where people can learn more about your work if they don't know. Sure. So we're working on the second edition of the Intuitive Eating Workbook, which originally came out in 2017. So sometime in 2024, there'll be a new edition and with two new chapters, one of them on social justice and one of them on integrating intuitive eating into eating disorder treatment. That's going to be added to that workbook. And I, uh, of course, then, you know, I have my intuitive eating journal and my intuitive eating workbook for teens that I love. In fact, with the new book, I'm asking the publishers to not make my journal look like the intuitive mm-hmm. eating workbook because they're exactly identical, except mine's a little, the journal's a little smaller. And a number of people have said, oh, oh, I already have that. And I said, no, 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 that's a workbook. Mm-hmm. This is a journal, which is a whole different approach. Anyway, so mm-hmm. there's that. And there's, of course, the card deck. And so there's a, a number of places where people can learn more about intuitive eating by reading and listening. There's some audio versions as well. And then I have my own website, elisresh.com. And there's the intuitive eating website, of course, which has a list of a lot of the research studies, which were over 200 200 research studies now validating intuitive mm-hmm. eating, really good research, so to speak. And the only social media that I am on is on Instagram. And I think it's at Elise Resch. Do not, if you hear this, do not go to the Resch Elise account. That was the one mm-hmm. I started when I was, when my Instagram account was hacked. I'm not on any other social, I mean, I may be, I have accounts, <laughs> but I don't ever go to the other social media. I don't like social media. It's too, it takes up too much of your life, you know, if you get, if you let yourself. Yeah, well, and a whole other can of worms, but it kind of, I think, destroys people's minds too. So there's that. <laughs> I do. I really do. I think it kills brainwaves if you spend yeah. too much time on And like, yeah, it turns us into really mean people in a lot of ways, I think. Kind of the worst versions of ourselves. But anyway, I like your websites. I will link to those for sure. And we'll link to the, the Instagram that you use as well in the show notes for this. Thank you, Christy. So that is our show. Thanks so much to our amazing guest for being here and to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support the show by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, early access to regular episodes, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on this show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in the Rethinking Wellness newsletter or on a future podcast episode. 
This episode was brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. If you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art is by Tara Jacoby, and our theme song is written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care.